Welcome to the 180 Podcast. You are listening to a teaching of the 180, a new church committed to learning to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Our prayer is that God would use this teaching to help you grow closer to Him and that you would feel moved to join us in person, where you can grow in community with the larger 180 family. Bienvenue à la balado-diffusion de l'Église 180. Vous écoutez un enseignement de l'Église 180, une nouvelle Église qui s'est engagée à apprendre à aimer Jésus et à aimer comme Jésus. Notre prière est que Dieu utilisera cet enseignement afin de vous aider à vous rapprocher de Lui et que cela vous donne envie de vous joindre à nous en personne où vous pourrez vous épanouir au sein de la communauté qu'est la grande famille de l'Église 180. have a seat. Thank you, worship team. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Michael, one of the pastors here. It's so good to be with you. Uh, happy Labor Day weekend. Is that a thing that we say? I have no idea, but happy Labor Day. Everybody's too tired from school season to even, you're just, it's just a recovery day, basically, right? Uh, but happy Labor Day weekend. Today, as I mentioned, we're wrapping up our series that we've been going through all summer called Grown Up Prayers, and in this series we've been going through the book of the Psalms in the Bible, and we've been looking at different Psalms and how these Psalms, as these sacred prayers, actually teach us to pray, and not only how they teach us to pray, but they actually actually help us grow and mature in our prayers in a way that we actually learn in our prayers to honor God. And so as we wrap up this series, if you've joined us, maybe just even for one of them, if you've been listening online for any of these past sort of eight or nine weeks, here are some things about prayer that you would have learned so far if you've been following with us. We're going to have them on the screen. Here are a few things that you may have learned. You may have think of, of your own, but here are a few that I thought of. One is recognizing that prayer is an ongoing practice. It's not such something that we do or something that just happens by accident. It's something that we actually commit to growing in in our prayers, to maturing in. Another one is that it helps us to get honest The Psalms really help us in many ways to get honest in our prayers, to really recognize maybe there are things in our hearts that we're prone to hide that God wants us to just be honest with him, that he's a safe person to, to share that with, to be honest even when there are things that are difficult or emotions maybe that are painful, that we can be honest in our prayers. Another one is that he opens us to a new perspective, that as we pray and as we're kind of in a certain situation or kind of say, hey God, here are my feelings, But as like Mateo, I think, mentioned during the summer, like this is how I feel and maybe this isn't the whole story. God, maybe you have another perspective for me, a way that you're, you're calling me to trust in that. Or uh, another one I thought of is just trusting how God is at work. Trusting he's at work even when we sleep. Or trusting that he's at work even when things don't seem to be going well, that he's still at work. Maybe you think of your own, if you've tracked with us at all this summer, of how God is teaching you maybe to pray in a new way. But as you look back, which of those things are you really learning? And which is maybe God asking you to really commit to keep praying that way, to keep growing in that kind of prayer? This is a really important question because whenever we wrap up any series, but especially a series like this, we want to kind of warn you or remind you that this isn't something that you can just hear once and then forget about it or, or think that you just hear it, you'll just automatically grow in it because if you don't really commit to doing that, you'll forget about it. You won't learn it at all. It's too easy to kind of just hear a sermon once, forget and just move on instead of really committing to growing in that new thing. Now we know growing in something new, committing to something new isn't an easy thing to do. 
to really kind of commit to putting something new into practice. Sometimes this can feel really difficult or overwhelming, just even to admit that there's an area maybe where you need to mature in, where you've been immature. Uh, But wherever you're at, maybe you just even recognize an area of prayer where you need to mature. Uh, If that's you, Jesus has some really encouraging words for you. There's a moment actually in the Gospels where Jesus is with the disciples and he's with a crowd of people and he's teaching and healing and doing different things and something happens that actually shocks the disciples that Jesus is with. This is what happens. It's in the Gospel of Luke. It says, People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked him. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now maybe as you read this or you see this, you've actually come across this passage before, maybe as you've learned to kind of read your Bible, or maybe if you've grown up in church, you've seen this passage in Sunday school, it's like, oh, that sounds really nice. That's so nice that Jesus loves children, because I hate children, but it's nice that Jesus loves them, or whatever, right? This is just a nice passage. But really, if that's all you think is happening here, uh, you actually miss the fact that the the disciples are shocked by what Jesus does. And they're shocked uh, in a surprising way. Like, can you imagine actually being in their shoes in that moment, and being like, they're so confident that they know what Jesus is going to do, that they turn people away, only to hear the next moment, Jesus is like, no, he does the opposite, like, let them come. And the reason why the disciples do this or they react this way is because at the time, children were kind of seen as less important or they were getting in the way or because of their immaturity, they felt that they shouldn't be there. And so the disciples are shocked that despite the immaturity of these children, God still welcomes them. In doing this, in Jesus welcoming these children, he gives this surprising and even beautiful picture of a God who is someone who welcomes everyone. No matter where they're at, even the ones that you least expect, and even the ones who are still immature. This is so encouraging for each of us. So encouraging to know, even if you recognize there are ways that you've been praying, maybe that are immature, or ways that maybe just prayer just feels brand new to you, that God still welcomes you in your prayers. Even if you're just learning to pray for the first time, you feel like you know so little, or you feel like you can't find the right words or it feels really messy to pray, or no matter even how difficult maybe this season of your life is right now, God still hears your prayers. And he still welcomes your prayers. He still draws near. He promises to be with you. And he listens. And he cares. And he still speaks. At the same time, though, this passage, as well as the Psalms that we've been looking at, still teach us that while God welcomes us, where we're at in our immaturity, we never stay there. He never leaves us there. That while he meets you where you're at, he still also helps you to grow and to mature. And that's what this series has really been about. This whole series is about committing to growing and maturing in our prayers in ways that honor who God is. And so this week I want to wrap up our series by looking at a psalm that focuses on what it means to pay attention to what matters most in our prayers. Or more specifically, who or what we're honoring most when we pray. And that psalm that we're going to look at is a Psalm 115. And here's how the psalm begins. Here's how it starts. It says this. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory 
because of your love and faithfulness. This is such a simple but important prayer, and it's actually a common theme that comes up in many of the Psalms that they give us as a learn of wing, honoring God in our prayers, to pray that he would have the glory, not us. Now, this word glory is not something that we, word it, we use in everyday language outside of the church. Maybe you do, but I don't find myself using it every day. Uh, but the word glory actually comes from a Hebrew word, which is the word kavod, and it best translates in English as the word weight. Not like wait for something to happen or wait for somebody to do something, but wait as in like a weight at a gym. A weight or a kind of a heaviness or like matter, something that really matters or has significance. And so to glorify God or to give him glory in our prayers means almost to give him more weight, give to, more weight to him than we give to ourselves. It's to choose to pray in a way that what matters to him is more important than what matters to us. When you pray, do your prayers reveal that you're more concerned with giving glory to yourself or with giving glory to God? What would it look like even as you think about that to mature in your prayers in a way that really gives glory to God more and more in your prayers? As you think about your work or a conflict that you're in or relationships with family or neighbors or coworkers. This prayer to let God have the glory is really a prayer to let God be in charge instead of me. It's a prayer to surrender control and let God do things on his terms instead of on my terms. This isn't an easy prayer to do, is it? It's easy to say, but it's not really easy to put into practice. And it's so much easier, I think, to pray for something to go my way instead of God's way especially in moments of conflict or disagreement. That's when it's easier to kind of say to God, hey, I'll change, but only when you change the other person first. Then I'll change. Or in moments where things really aren't going how you expect them to go, it's easier to say to God, I'm only really going to trust you when the good things start happening to me again. But in the meantime, I'm not so sure, God. But it's not only that. Really to pray this prayer for God to have glory in our lives also means to give him more weight than other things that we're tempted to see or treat as more important than him. This psalm that we're going to look at, that we're working through, is most likely written actually during a time when the people of Israel are in exile and they're living under the rule of another nation called the Babylonians. And so this psalm comes, or it's written, as the people of Israel really reflecting on what they did to get themselves in this situation, what they did to end up in exile. And they really know, as they're reflecting on this, they ended up in exile because they had failed time and time again to give glory to God. And one of the biggest ways that they failed to do this was that despite so many warnings, despite knowing God's commands, they kept choosing to worship idols, They kept worshiping the idols, not only of other nations, like the nation of Babylon, but they even worshiped their own idols that they made, even though they knew God's command to only worship him and to only give glory to him. And so as we're going to look at these next two sections of the psalm coming up, it's easy to think as we look at these that these are just the psalm really critiquing or criticizing the other nations outside of Israel, including the Babylonians, when really this is first a critique to its own people for their own failure. Here's what it says next. It says this. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. 
he does whatever pleases him. Again, a common kind of mistake or misunderstanding people have when they read a passage like this or a similar passage that refers to the nations or talks about the nations is to think that the nation of Israel in writing this is just kind of as God's people scolding or looking down on the other nations for worshiping idols and for their own failure to worship the one true God. While part of that is true, that's not the whole story here. Whenever you see a passage like this about the nations, you should remember that Israel was supposed to be a light to those nations. Their whole identity as God's people was to be a light to the nations around them so that other nations would come to know and to worship God as the one true God. That was actually why they were set apart as his people in the first place. But again, because the Jewish people fail by choosing time and again to worship idols, they fail to point these nations to God. They fail to give glory to God and to make his name known to those nations around him. And as a result, God then sends them into exile to learn from their mistakes. And throughout the Bible, there's a pattern where God always critiques his own people first before he ever critiques the the rest of the world. Now, it's important to, to point out that where this verse says, if you want to put it back up, where it says God is in heaven and does whatever pleases him, that can sound kind of really harsh to us, kind of really disconnected. But it doesn't mean that God is really the kind of God who just sits up somewhere on his throne and looks down on us, or that he kind of just punishes us for the fun of it or for his own entertainment, or that he doesn't care about us. It means that actually because God is in heaven meaning that because he's not tainted by evil or imperfections, that he can't be contained or manipulated in any way, that doing what he pleases, because he's God, means that he always acts out of love for us here on earth. That's what it means that he does what he pleases. God is so pure and so holy that he can only show perfect love. And so the writer of the psalm and the Jewish people are really saying, God loves us so much that now he's punishing us. He's disciplining us out of his love for us. Again, this is really maybe hard for us to understand, or it's a hard thing to really trust about God as we look at that. But maybe the clearest example we have of maybe how this works in our society, in our world today, is for those of us who are parents, uh, how as parents we choose to punish or discipline our kids because we actually love them too much not to. Just the other day or just yesterday, Uh, My youngest daughter, Rosie, was in an argument with her older sister, Audrey. They were playing Lego together. They got in a fight, and I overheard most of this, and I knew that Rosie, the younger sister, was being really mean to her older sister, Audrey. And so I took her aside. I spoke to her about this. Of course, she denied it. She said it was her older sister being mean, but I kind of pointed out the ways she was mean. I'm like, you're not getting away with this. And she pulled the trump card that kids always pull at some point, which is to say, yeah, well, I just don't care. So I thought about that for a second, and I said, well, you may not care, but I care, and you should care. And you should care because if you continue to be with us this way, your sisters aren't going to want to play with you, you're you're not going to have any friends, and you're just going to be alone for the rest of your life. (laughs) Probably wasn't the best thing to say as a parent, but I I, I tried it. But again, it was because I care. And so she said, because she's as stubborn as she is, she says, yeah, well, I don't care if I'm alone for the rest of my life. She said, okay. I said, well, why don't you just sit by yourself, take the time to think about that, and think about whether that's true, if you really want to be alone. And if it's not, 
you know, when you're ready, you can go apologize to your sister. So sure enough, a couple minutes she went, uh, a couple minutes later she went and she apologized. But really, as, as parents, we think about this. We discipline our kids because we love them and we care about them so much and we care about the kind of people they're becoming. And again, we don't always do that perfectly. But how much more does God, who is in heaven, who is undefiled by false motivations or imperfections, how much more does he love his people when he disciplines them? And so again, because of the failure of the Jewish people, they actually become an example to the other nations. But in their prayers, at the same time, they're learning that God is still there with them, even in their disobedience and even in their captivity. That he's still there, and not only, he's not only there when things are good, but he's there even when they make mistakes or even when they mess up. And he's really continuing to teach them to turn back to him even as he disciplines them. But they also, again, become a model to the other nations. They become a model to the nations to say, if you think that worshiping these idols is okay, look what happened to us. We, as God people, didn't think it was a big deal. We thought it was okay to dabble once in a while in worshiping these idols. But look what happened to us. So just think about or imagine what can happen to you. And so this psalm really then warns not only the nation of Babylon, but the other surrounding nations about the dangers of worshiping other idols in, worship, in place of worshiping God, just as the people of Israel had done. Here's what it says next. It says, But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. As you read that, this section I think maybe can be hard to understand or relate to, since we don't have a lot of kind of the same types of examples of idols or that kind of idol worship in our world today. But for the Jewish people and for the surrounding nations, an idol was literally an image, an image like a sculpture or a statue that was made to represent one of their gods. And often it was actually made to represent their king that they looked at like a god. And while the people who made these idols didn't actually think that the gods were kind of contained in these images, uh, they made them as a way to kind of try to get what they wanted out of them. The idea was that as long as you offer the right sacrifices, those things will grant you their wishes or your wishes, sorry, and you'll receive what you want for them, whether that's like health or security or success or fertility or whatever else, that if you just gave the right sacrifice, you would get that thing back that you wanted. But the psalm really calls us out and it says, don't be deceived by these idols and their appearances. Don't put your trust or give more weight to those things than the things that they're promising to deliver, because even though they look like they can bring you fulfillment, they're not what they appear to be. And while idols, again, for us, don't really look the same today, this psalm's warning about idols is still such an important warning for us. To pay attention, really, to the things that we can look to or turn to or begin to kind of see as mattering more or becoming more important or valuable to us than God. Because we think they'll bring us deep fulfillment or make us even feel more alive. But I want to be careful as I share about idols in our world today because one kind of mistake that's easy to make 
when we read about these passages about idols in the Bible, is, and we think about what that means for the world today, is we assume or we can see everything in our world around us as an idol. To think that our, even our role as Christians is to hide ourselves or to hide our children from the world because of all the idols around us. And we tend to do this, I think, especially with things that we don't understand. Things like, I don't know, certain genres of music or even certain worship practices from other Christian traditions. Or we do it with things that are new or that are a result maybe of rapid change in our society. Things like video games or social media or chat GPT or other AI. Whatever the, the new thing is that we don't quite understand. And again, that's not to say that we don't need to be wise about how we interact with some of these things or to not consider carefully what's an appropriate use, even depending on someone's age or aspects of those things that might be inherently good or bad. But when we really aren't wise about this, it's easy to just see everything as idols. To say, see, this is what's wrong with the world. There's just so many idols around us. And then our Christian faith or our prayers become about keeping everything else out and protecting our kids from the world. And because of that, what can happen at the same time, if this is our only lens, is we can actually miss the subtle ways we've actually let other good things slowly turn into idols in our hearts. The late uh, Tim Keller, maybe you've heard of him, has one of, I think, the best definitions of idolatry that I've come across. And he defines it this way. You'll see it up on the slide. He says, idolatry is when our heart takes good things and turns them into ultimate things. In other words, idolatry is the temptation to take the good things and give them the most value in our lives or give them the most weight or significance, more than what they should have, and to give glory to those things in place of giving glory to God. And we tend to do this, this is, excuse me, the tricky thing, is we tend to do this not so much with things that we just know are bad or evil to begin with, we tend to do it with things that are good. In his book, Tim Keller kind of uh, says this, it's a book called uh, Counterfeit Gods, but he says this, I think it's a really important quote, He says, we think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit god or as an idol, especially the very best things in life. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Our hearts are actually tempted to do this all the time with good things, whether it's things like success or money or sex or security or health or even our relationships, that if we're not careful and we give them too much priority or too much weight in our lives, their their importance actually begins to replace our trust in God. And we we start to expect them to fulfill something in us that only God can fulfill or that only God can give us. As I was kind of preparing and praying about this this week, thinking about just maybe even idols in my own life or things to pay attention to, I also thought about, I thought about that and I also thought about what are the kind of idols, particularly as we head into the fall season, that may tempt each of us. One idol that I know that has taken root uh, in my heart often in past seasons, especially when I'm kind of entering a new season, is I'm tempted to idolize the season that's just come to an end. 
especially like in, in years where I was beginning a, like a season of travel for work, or as a student when I was starting a new semester, or when there was just a lot of change, I would begin to glorify the, the, the season that was ending. And I did this almost a way of, of escaping what was coming next. I did it in place of actually trusting that God would still be with me in the new season that was coming. I think many of us can do this or feel this way, uh, particularly when we're entering a new season, uh, particularly maybe in, in Quebec when uh, summer ends. Like especially in Quebec, we only really get three days of summer out of the year. So it's hard not to kind of glorify those three days, right? It's, and again, while it's a good thing, I want to say to look back, to celebrate the season that's passed, to even recognize that God has been at work in unique ways, to look back and say, God, you were so faithful. We have to pay attention when celebrating the past turns into idolizing the past. It's good. It's a really good thing. And I do this to post pictures of a past season. We do it at church to celebrate something that's happened. We post pictures of vacation. But again, it becomes a bad thing when it's connected to maybe complaining about a tough time at work or complaining about something that's coming up. Or when posting pictures even of our kids when they were little, again, that's a great thing, but it can become a, a, something that we have to pay attention to being a bad thing when it becomes about pining for those days in a way that no longer trusts that God is still with you and still with them as they get older and as you get older. But another way that I thought of that I think we have to pay attention to how idolatry can take root in our hearts, particularly in the fall, is with the back-to-school season. And I think this can maybe come in different ways or in different forms. One way I think this can happen is that maybe out of a longing for control or a certain uh, anxiety or worry that can come, which is, which is natural to a certain extent, that those things, if we're not careful, can begin to rule your heart in place of trusting in God. And when this takes root... When your child doesn't get the class or the teacher that you hope for, it can quickly just feel like everything's falling apart. And again, those are good desires for your child to succeed or to feel secure or to make friends. But if we're not careful and we don't pay attention to how those things maybe can become an idol, that can quickly turn into anger towards the school principal or bitterness or being extra critical to a teacher or gossiping with others. And I think the same thing, this tendency can happen uh, just even with new changes or new seasons at work or whatever else it is. But as we head into the fall and as we think about this, as Christians, we're actually called to trust God in a way that we model something different to the world around us. We're called to model a life that's rooted in a deep trust of God, that keeps us from the temptation to put our trust in the things that will only disappoint us or that will only make us feel bitter or angry or critical of others. We're called to model a patience and a sense of peace and a deep trust in God to those around us. As you think of this coming fall season particularly, is there an idol maybe that you need to pay attention that could distract you from trusting in God or can distract you from modeling a life of trusting in God. Maybe it's uh, the tendency or the temptation to trust in your own abilities or for success or for security or some other way you're really seeking fulfillment in the wrong thing. Excuse me, the wrong things. 
This psalm ends this, this particular section talking about idols with really a stark warning to those who really ignore the dangers of putting our trust or, uh, in idols or, or giving glory to the wrong things. It says this about what ultimately happens when that grips, idolatry grips your heart. This is what it says. It says, Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Wow. Isn't that a hard truth? What a hard-hitting verse. Pastor Don would, was here, he'd probably say it's like a punch in the face. Right? I'm a little calmer than that, so I don't say those things, but it is like a punch in the face. But it's such a profound truth, isn't it, that when we let idolatry take root in our hearts, when we glorify and trust in something so much that it becomes an idol in our life, we actually become like that thing. It's the reality that when we give into their promise of making us feel more alive, we actually, as a result, it makes us less alive and less human because they can't do for us the thing that only God can do. And even worse, when we place their trust in them in place of God, we actually become blinded to God's ways. We become those who have eyes and ears to hear and see, but don't, no longer see how God's at work. Or become those who have mouths who no longer taste of God's goodness or no longer share that with other people. I remember a time in my life as I reflect on this where this really happened to me. It was a time where uh, I had grown up in church and faith was kind of new to me and I was re- re- you know, wrestling this out. I was committing to follow Jesus. Uh, but at the same time, really kind of pride and self-righteousness had taken root in my heart. And uh, I kind of secretly, at this season of my life, I would really kind of judge people and look down on them. Maybe not so secretly, because probably other people around me noticed that I was doing this. Uh, but at the same time, I had some new friends, some, some good friends who, were, who I was really growing with, who uh, were kind of new to church or new to the faith. And they came to the point where a couple of them actually were ready to kind of make a decision to say yes to Jesus. And I remember, like I distinctly remember that when they were doing this, instead of celebrating it, I felt so bitter. I felt bitter because I thought they were too messy. They had made bigger mistakes than I felt I had made. They didn't know enough. They didn't go through the same steps. And so instead of celebrating that, I was bitter and I was angry and I thought that it wasn't fair. And I think about just how sad this is when they were close friends of mine as well, that I couldn't celebrate what God was doing. I think about that season, and I think about how much would be at stake if I never grew past that. How much I would miss how God is at work in people around me, and how much he wants me to pay attention to that. I think what would be at stake, and I think still, how much it's it's something that's really important to, to pay attention to. That temptation of how idolatry can still grip my heart, and how that can affect how I see God at work in the next generation, how I see God at work in my own kids, that if I don't pay attention to how the idolatry could grip my heart, I could miss the things that God is doing, and I could see those good things as actually something that's bad. When idolatry has your heart, you can turn something that should be received as good news into bad news and completely miss how God is work. You, you, you can see and hear what he's doing, or you can fail to taste in his goodness, and you can stop walking in his ways. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were actually the best example of somebody who did this. 
Their hearts were so full of idolatry that over and over again, they actually fail to see or celebrate how God is at work. Even after Jesus heals somebody, they become bitter. bitter. Or even after Jesus forgives, they become angry with Jesus. And they were actually the ones, as God's chosen people, who knew the story of Israel, who should have understood that their role was to be a light to the nations. But instead, they judged others, and at the same time, they failed to pay attention to how idolatry had taken root first in them. This is why the Pharisees actually become the people that Jesus criticizes the most, because they're a symbol of people who should have known better, but instead they become blinded to God's ways. But after this psalm shares this warning about trusting in idols and the result that can happen from that, it ends kind of with a note of hope. That even though God's people had failed so many times and now find themselves in exile, it ends with a call to recommit to trusting in God and to putting him first. Here's what it says. It says, All you Israelites trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. This psalm kind of moves from this lesson of, uh, of idols and the things that can do by using these kind of different lines to say that the whole community of Israel, including the priests or whoever else, that they need to put their trust once again in God and to do this as a model to the rest of the world. And as we pray, as we look back and we pray the words of this psalm, it's a call to us as well that even after we failed to trust God in so many ways, it says trust him again, recommit. It's this call to trust in God, and it's not a trust that's just kind of a passive trust. Often we think about when we think of the word trust, it's kind of just sitting back and letting God do things. But this is actually an active trust that involves all of who we are, that calls us to pay attention to areas where we need to grow in trusting in him, maybe an area that we haven't trusted in him before. It's the kind of trust we're called to grow in in our prayers that moves us to a deeper surrender or that moves us to a deeper commitment or maybe a commitment to something new or to keep us persevering and trusting God even when it's hard or even when things aren't going well. It's a kind of trust that moves us even to learn to be more honest with God. It's a kind of trust that calls us even to intentionally turn from other things that we're tempted to put our trust in or to place as, or see as being more important than God. And I think this idea of trusting in God, this word trust, is really actually the best word that we have for what it means to have faith or to believe in God. Because it actually highlights this idea of building our whole lives on him in a way that it involves our whole selves. And unlike trusting in idols, when you grow in your trust in God, he gives you eyes to see how he's at work and ears to hear how he's speaking. He gives you a mouth to taste of his goodness and to share that with others. As you think about this, and as you think about this season, and what what ways maybe is God asking you to trust in him again this fall? Maybe what new way is he asking you to trust in him in a deeper way than you have before? Maybe a simple prayer just to start this fall season as you commit to really looking back at this prayer and praying, uh, praying through this psalm is to pray this. God, help me to trust you more than 
fill in the blank. What comes to mind for you? What is maybe God asking you to put there? Maybe it's to trust him more than your own strength or a desire for success or security. Or maybe it's to trust him more than a fear or anxiety or a need for control. Or just the things that you turn to that seem more exciting or more alive that you recognize will just let you down. What is that thing for you? As we kind of move towards the end of this psalm and wrap up not only this morning, but this series on the psalms that we've gone through, uh, I'm going to invite the, the band to come back up and to close in a song for us. But I want to end with uh, this last passage from Psalm 115 that connects to really how we began this whole summer series, uh, right from week one in Psalm 1, that points to a vision of God's blessings. This is what it says. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children, and may you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This psalm, as many of the psalms do, give us a vision of what a life blessed by God actually looks like. It's a vision of the blessed life that's so different than the vision the world around us gives us. The things that we're tempted to place our trust in instead of God. And because of God's love for us, he wants to bless us by forming us in our prayers as we commit to maturing and learning in our prayers. The Psalms are really a gift to help us do that. God wants to bless you by teaching you to pray in a way that actually makes you feel more alive to what he's doing and the things around you. To pray in a way that he actually opens your eyes and opens your heart to how he's at work. To pray in a way that he recognize, you recognize that he's blessing you to bless those around you. We're going to end just by uh, singing this song again that we sang earlier, just a part of it called, called Promises. And as we pray this, as we sing this as our prayer, it's about really trusting in God that we can trust him because he's, we can be kind of faithful to him because he's first faithful to us. That he's God, he's the God, he's the only thing that's actually worthy of us putting our trust in first, making the number one priority of our lives, because he is worthy. Because he's the kind of God who's always faithful to us. That the only thing that he can do, the only thing that pleases him is to show his love for us. And so just as we, we sing this last part, I'm going to invite you to stand and sing this last song as a prayer of trust in God.
is our prayer and to put our trust in that kind of God. And we recognize that as we kind of take the risk maybe of, of trusting God in a new way, that we can't do that on our own strength. We need his help. So just as we end this series, I actually want to put the, that prayer just back up on the screen. It says, God, help me to trust you more than blank. Just as we end, I want to give you a time before you go home to just now to just pray that prayer and just see what God kind of puts on your heart. If you want to just even close your eyes and just pray that. God, help me to trust you more than What is that thing for you? Maybe for you, you're just, this is kind of, kind of new to you and you're new to this story. And your kind of next step in trust is just to say, God, I recognize that those things that I have been putting my trust in are always going to disappoint me. And so help me to just take the first step of trusting in you. Maybe for you, there's just something that God's bringing to mind. It's just so hard to trust him with. She just asked for his strength. God is always faithful. God, we desire to be a people who puts our trust in you and who grows in that more and more in our prayers and in our lives. God, we thank you that we can do that with the confidence that you are always faithful, that you are so holy, and that your love is so great that it's a mystery to us. God, help us to pay attention to the things that we're tempted to put our trust in in place of you. We just want to surrender those things to you and again ask for your help to trust you with the things that you're doing in this new season, with the ways that you're going before us and the ways that you're already at work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear your kingdom, how you're furthering your ways and your purposes. And God, help us to be those who model that, who participate in that with you. Help us to take this seriously. God, we want to be those kind of people. And so again, we thank you that you're always faithful, that you always go before us, and that you will go before us in this next season. Thank you for this time and for the ways that you're just speaking to us. Just pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks everyone. A couple things before you go. One, if you just want to take the time to pray with somebody, we have an amazing prayer team. Uh, in purse space in the corner they'd love to pray with you uh, just looking to kind of next week things coming up we're starting a new series next week and we'll be taking communion together as well as part of that that series we're really really excited about this fall series and so I uh, really hope that you join us it's kind of the first time we're doing this as a church the series is called What Won't Change talking about different uh, biblical values for an ankle life of growing in a church and so really excited for that series again join us next week as we kick that off with taking communion together. We'll see you next week. Have a great week.